Everything we think, everything we feel, everything we do is tainted with sin to such a degree that Jesus can simply say, here's the two paths. There's the path of the things of God. There's the path of the things of man. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is perhaps the greatest example in all of human history of one who is so right and yet so wrong. Isn't it? So close and yet so far. So correct and yet so mistaken all at the same time. Peter has just barely finished the words you are the Christ, when now we read these words that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So we are told very plainly in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the cross is the stumbling block for Jews and the first Jews to stumble upon the cross were the twelve. The very first ones to stumble upon this was Peter and those whom he spoke for, because as we'll see that Peter is often the spokesman of the twelve. Peter was a natural born leader. God created him to lead people. And so he's naturally stepping out and speaking for other people on many occasions. And this is one of those occasions when he's speaking for, for the other eleven. And he and the other eleven are the first to hear of this cross and they're the first to choke on it. So taking him aside. Now, as he takes him aside, I think perhaps we're to hear something there in Mark's words of, of, you recall his theme that he now starts. We've changed from the theme of the water as Jesus is either on the boat or walking beside the Sea of Galilee or just getting out of the boat in the first half. Now the theme is on the way. He's constantly on the way, on the way, on the way. And so perhaps... Mark wants us to hear something as he took him aside. Maybe taking him off the way. Maybe this misunderstanding, this confusion, this spiritual miscomprehension on the part of Peter is meant to be seen by us as taking Jesus temporarily off the path of his traverse to Jerusalem. Taking him aside. He's going to take him aside and rebuke him. Also, rings, at least in my ear, the echo of what we talked about at the first miraculous feeding. Remember the first miraculous feeding? And we talked about how they were going to take him and make him king by force. And we talked of the irony, the sad irony of thinking that you are going to forcibly make someone your ruler or your king. And so here is the same theme coming back once again as Peter takes the master aside, the one who is just proclaimed to be the anointed one, and he's going to set the anointed one straight on a few things. It's exactly the same thing as taking him by force and making him king. So he takes him aside, ostensibly to save him some embarrassment from this little talking to that Peter's going to give him. And he began to rebuke him. Same word there. He began to not just say to Jesus, Jesus, let's, let's rethink this thing. Instead, the word rebuke speaks to us once again of a stern command that carries an implied consequence. Jesus, 
we have proclaimed our loyalty to you. If you continue on this path, you're going to lose us. And not only us, you're going to lose this, this crowd, these people. We've already left. We've already lost many when you started giving that teaching about eating your flesh and drinking your blood. But if you continue on this path, I'm warning you, Jesus, you're going to lose everybody. So he began to rebuke him. Now, why do you think that Peter, we're told, began to rebuke him? It's as though the rebuke wasn't completed, isn't it? Now, why, if that's the case, why wasn't Peter's rebuke completed, do you think? We're not told. But I love to speculate on these things. Could it be that Peter's rebuke was interrupted by Jesus' words, Get behind me, Satan? Could it be that Peter hadn't yet gotten the rebuke fully out before Jesus is now saying, Stop right there, Peter? Possibly. Or possibly Peter himself, once he started, found he was unable to follow through. You ever been there? You ever been in the place where you were going to rebuke someone of great respect and authority and you rehearse the rebuke and the words that you've rehearsed start coming out? And as they start coming out, you just feel this sense of deflation of well, now that I hear myself, I just don't think I can follow through with this. That ever happened to you? I remember one time in my life I was going to rebuke my mother. And same thing, sort of, you know, I knew what I was going to say. And then just about one sentence into it, it's like, I don't think I can continue with this, you know. Maybe that's Peter here. Maybe as the words start coming out, Peter's anger is almost immediately diffused as he's looking into the Savior's face, into the Master's face, and reading in his face, he just stepped in it. He just went somewhere he was not to go. So perhaps that's why he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples. So once again, the theme is on the way, on the way. So Jesus now has to turn. So he turns And we're told, seize his disciples. I think that in that look, we're told that there's this look and seeing the disciples. I think that in that, we should read that Jesus, of course, knowing their hearts from John 2, 14, Jesus knows their hearts. But in that look, Jesus is looking to them as though to say in that look that he knows that Peter's speaking for them too. And so he turns perhaps to look at them as if to say, I know that you too are thinking the same thing. So this rebuke that you're about to hear is for you just as much as it's for Peter. But he gives them this look. And wouldn't you just, well, I was about to say, wouldn't you like to see that look? But I guess we wouldn't like to see that look. Sometimes the looks of Jesus, have you ever noticed the looks of Jesus? They come sometimes at these moments that are so powerful, but you can just perhaps imagine in your sanctified imagination the Savior looking at Peter as Peter completes the third denial. Or the Savior looking at the rich young ruler as the rich young ruler chooses earthly possessions over eternal riches. Or the Savior looking down 
straight into the face of the Apostle John and his mother Mary and saying to John, take her and treat her as your own. The looks of the Savior. This is one I don't think anyone in the room would have wanted to be on the other end of as he turns and seeing his disciples. He rebuked, same word, this is the third rebuke in the passage now. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. So we'll rest there for just a few minutes to understand Jesus's counter rebuke, which is to say, get behind me, Satan. So this word Satan, the word Satan means literally adversary. It's a word that shows up in our New Testament about 35 times. And in the New Testament, it's always referring to the person, the being that we know of as the devil, as Lucifer. His most common pronoun, or not pronoun, but his most common designator in the New Testament is Satan. He has many other names in the New Testament. God of this age, God, prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the adversary, the enemy. But the most common one is this one, Satan. And we find it capitalized in the New Testament. So we should be careful to understand Satan is not his name. His personal name is not Satan. His personal name we would know of as Lucifer. Instead, Satan is his title. So in the same way that the Christ is the title of Jesus, so also the Satan is the title of Lucifer. So we call him that, and I think sometimes we call him that by default thinking that that's his name, when really it's not his name, it's his title. His title is adversary. This same word shows up many, many times in the Old Testament, and very rarely in the Old Testament is it used to refer to the adversary, the being known of as Satan, but oftentimes it shows up in the New Testament as just an adversary. Solomon, we're told that God raises up adversaries against uh, Solomon by the king of Tyre. And the word there is Satan. God raises up Satans against King Solomon. We're told that King David had Satans, such as Shimei. That, that Shimei, when he was accusing David, was Satan against, uh, against David. We're even told that the angel of the Lord, and in Old Testament language, we know that the angel of the Lord means the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, making an appearance in the Old Testament. We're even told in, the, in Numbers that the angel of God is called Satan in that very bizarre episode of Balaam and the donkey. Remember that? As God raises up this, uh, or, this or causes this donkey to see the angel of the Lord who is standing in the path. And we're told that the angel of the Lord stood in his path as an adversary, as Satan. So that's literally the basis. The meaning of the word is adversary. And then when we get to the New Testament, this becomes the title, capital A, adversary, capital S, the Satan, because he is primarily the adversary, the adversary of the kingdom of God, the adversary of the son of man. He is the adversary. So when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, adversary, get behind me, Satan. Jesus is not implying here that Peter has now been indwelt by the king of the kingdom of evil and that Jesus now has to perform some type of exorcism to get Satan out of Peter. Instead, as he calls Peter Satan, he is saying to Peter that the words that you have said, the rebuke that you have given to me, the thought process that's behind that rebuke is the work of the Satan. 
This is the work of the adversary. Get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, Satan. You stand between me and the cross. And anyone who stands between me and the cross is the Satan, is the adversary. So get behind me. If you are to be with me, you are not to be between me and the cross. You are to be behind me as I am going to the cross. So he clearly declares here that this adversarial work, this this encouraging of Jesus to, or not, I shouldn't say encouraging, it's much stronger than that, this rebuke of Jesus to say, Jesus, this is not in keeping with the plan, that this rebuke of Jesus to attempt to keep him from the cross is the work of the adversary, of the Satan. So we ask ourselves the question, well, what exactly does Satan want to do? What's Satan's goal after all? Does Satan want to keep Jesus away from the cross? Or does Satan want to kill Jesus and put him on the cross? What does Satan really want to do? Because we find Satan actually doing both. Chapter 1, we find Satan as the adversary comes to Jesus in the wilderness and tempts Jesus for 40 days to bypass the cross, to choose glory without the suffering. Or here we see the adversarial work of the Satan clearly to keep Jesus from the cross, or at least an attempt to do that. We see the other great temptation of Christ in the garden, the night of his arrest. And that temptation is the same. Don't take this cup. Do anything but take this cup. And so we see that, but then we also see in places like John 13 or Luke 22, we see that Satan indwells who? Judas to betray Christ over to the cross. So what is it that Satan wants? Does he want to kill Jesus or does he want to keep Jesus from the cross? Well, I think that the answer lies, first of all, just in remembering his nature. Jesus says in John's gospel, as he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, you're like your father, your father, the devil, the Satan. He's two things. He's a murderer and he's a liar. From the beginning, that's his nature. His nature is to murder. So in a similar way, as God's nature is love and God's nature is mercy and God's nature is justice and God's nature is holiness, in a similar way, the Satan's nature, Lucifer's nature is to murder. And so while Satan may demonstrate this desire to keep Christ from atoning for God's people by convincing him to not go to the cross, it's almost as though when he's presented the opportunity to murder someone, he just can't resist himself. He just has to murder because that's his nature. It's like the old story. Remember the old story? You probably heard this in the fairy tale books. The old story of the snake who wanted to cross the river and the snake couldn't swim. And so the snake goes to the hawk and says to the hawk, will you, will you pick me up and take me across the river? And the hawk says to the snake, no way. For as soon as I pick you up, you're going to bite me. And then we'll both fall into the river and we'll both die. I'm not going to do that. And the snake says, why would I do that? Because if I bit you, you would drop me. We'd both fall into the river and both die. I'm not going to do that. I, I will not bite you. And of course, the, he talks the hawk into picking up the snake. The hawk picks up the snake, starts flying across the river. And what does the snake do? Bites the hawk. The hawk looks down and says, why did you bite me? Because now we're both going to fall in the river and die. And the snake says, that's my nature. That's what I do. That's who I am. 
In a similar way, this is the nature of the Satan. Almost like when he has the opportunity, he must murder. Now, in a greater way, what this is really showing us is the awesome power of the Creator God who holds everything in His control. So that when it suits His will to use the Satan to bring a trial to His Son, to test and to prove His Son so that His Son will succeed where the first Adam failed, when that suits His will, that's how God uses the Satan. When it suits His will to use the Satan to be the means by which His Son is betrayed unto the cross, which is the purpose His Son came for, that's how God uses Him. You see, Satan is a pawn in God's hands. And we should always remind ourselves of that. He is a pawn in God's hands. You may have seen the painting of this representation of God and Satan playing chess. Nothing could be further from reality. Because God and the Satan are not equal opponents, not even close. Something closer to, to reality would be something like the Satan playing tic-tac-toe while God holds in His hands the lives of nine billion people and uses all of those nine billion people for His purpose. While also holding every star in its place and every planet in its orbit, while also causing the plants to grow, to feed the livestock, to feed the people who serve His purpose. That's a more accurate picture. While the Satan plays tic-tac-toe, God runs the universe. In a similar way, God uses the king of the kingdom of evil at His will, at His discretion, to His whim. When His purpose is to use the Satan to bring an adversary against His Messiah so that His Messiah will demonstrate where the first Adam failed, I will not fail. But it will one day fit God's purpose to use the Satan to betray Christ unto the cross. Once again, it will fit God's purpose to use the Satan for that last demonstration. For that last demonstration, this is what I do to evil once and for all as he defeats him finally and casts him into the lake of fire. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you have an italicized King James, you'll notice that things is italicized because it's supplied by the editors of our scriptures. So literally, Mark has Jesus' words as being, for you are not setting your mind on the God, but on man. You are not setting your mind on the God, but on the man. So there's a contrast here that must not escape us. Because the contrast, the dichotomy, What's at odds here is not what we would have put at odds if we were writing the Scriptures. If we were writing the Scriptures, we would almost assuredly say something like this, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of Satan. Wouldn't we? That, that would have been what we would have said. But that's not what Jesus said. The contrast instead that Jesus draws is the contrast between the things of God and the things of fallen man the things of the flesh. It's as though Jesus is calling attention to the fact that if, if we needed yet another reminder of the depravity of man, Jesus says, here's another one. 
You need to be reminded once again of the total depravity of man. Here it is. The total depravity of man is such that I can literally contrast the things of man against the things of God, and that makes my point. I can literally just say the opposite of the things of God is the things of man, and I don't need to say anything else because that explains it all. That's what Jesus is saying here, that the things of man, the heart of man, is so contrary to the things of God that Jesus can just say, here's the two paths. Here's the crossroads. Here's the separation. Here's the dichotomy. Your mind is either, like Romans 8 verse 7 tells us, either set on the Spirit or set on, not the devil, on the flesh, on the things of fallen man. So once again, a reminder for us that sin has touched every part of who we are. Sin has, has perverted everything about us to such a degree that Jesus can say the things of man are always opposed to the things of God. Did you catch that? The things of man are always opposed to the things of God. It is not correct for us to say that perhaps, apart from God, we could maybe have one holy thought. That apart from God, maybe we could do one righteous deed. Because the Scriptures teach us, Isaiah 62, that even our most righteous of deeds are polluted garments or filthy rags in His sight. Now, that's not the same thing as saying that we as fallen people are as evil as we could possibly be. But it is saying very plainly that everything we think, everything we feel, everything we do is tainted with sin to such a degree that Jesus can simply say, here's the two paths. There's the path of the things of God. There's the path of the things of man. 